today's scripture is 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also. And Nih- oh goodness, sorry. Ahinonam, sorry, of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, in Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, and everyone in his house, and everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed Judah king over the house of Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. No, thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning. All right. Thank you, Liz, for reading the word. And thank you, worship team, for leading us through this this time together this morning. And uh, if you're new or um, you haven't been in a while, I want to introduce myself. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, also, just a a heads up, kind of out of the gates, I have a stutter, so it'll kind of come in and out as I go. Um, I didn't forget my name. Sometimes I get asked that, and, and then it leads to a little awkward moment like f- five seconds after. But um, I'm glad that you're, you're here, and I'm glad that we're all here. I don't know what you have planned for this Labor Day weekend, but hopefully you were encouraged by a certain football game yesterday, as I was. I don't even know if the other Arizona teams even played yesterday, but who cares? We, we did. It was fun. That's all I'll say on that front. So uh, we're going to get into our time together, as Joel said earlier. And yeah, thank you so much, Joel, for that very intentional time that just helps usher us through the entire service here. What we walk through in this time is, is purposeful and in- intentional. And I, I was so blessed and encouraged um, up until this time walking up. In fact, I was kind of moved with the mo- motion right before, which is always scary. I'm like, When's this going to stop? What's going to happen? i got to come up soon. So um, anyway, I just go with it. Those who have been here long enough, you know, we cry, we, uh, we laugh, we may mess up. We sometimes trip on these stairs. But Liz, we have nothing to prove and nobody to impress. Amen? So thank you for saying all those hard words so I don't have to. That's what we did earlier. So um, if you have a Bible with you, will you go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel? We're kicking off now in 2 Samuel. We've been walking through 1 Samuel for a while, and, and we'll be just keeping going in the, in, the, in the journey together. If you don't have a Bible with you, will you go ahead and, uh, and you would like one, uh, would you hold your hand up high and keep it up, and somebody will get you one? Y en español, si quiere la Biblia y no tiene, por favor, le va and so again, this is our gift to you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, please keep it and put your name in it and underline stuff. And uh, we believe that, 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 that the Bible is a gift from God uh, given to uh, shape us and inform and transform us by the renewing of our minds. So with that... Will you join me in prayer as we go before God and ask and trust him to work and speak through uh, his word to us this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Um, Even the things that we've heard thus far throughout our time 
together this morning. I pray and trust that you've been preparing us to hear the good news of Jesus. In some ways, to hear maybe the bad news as we look at the reality of where we are as a world, as a society, in some ways as a community, and even in our own individual hearts, our desperate need for help. And then from there, I pray and trust that you will indeed, Lord, reveal your good news and and shape us and, and Lord, lead us to respond to you in faith and trust. And uh, again, I I pray and ask that, that, that you will speak to us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. In the mid-1990s in Scottsdale, Arizona, kind of the Phoenix area, there was a high school up there called Scottsdale Sawaro. Or those of us from Tucson, I went to Tucson Sawaro. We know that is the other Sawaro, right? The one spelled with a G. We spell ours with an H for some reason. But uh, the other Sawara, or I know some of you actually went to Sabino High School here in town, and you know them as the other Sabercats. So the, the Scottsdale Sawaro Sabercats had a football team, and again in the mid-1990s, a group of young men sat in a locker room at the end of a season after a 1-9 record. So if you're not super familiar with sports, I don't always talk about sports, maybe two-thirds of the time, but you're okay, right? I'll throw in some Broadway quotes or whatever, other things to, but, okay, humor me, right? This week, we're we're kicking off college football. So, uh, if you don't know sports, one in nine means one win, nine losses, uh, withhold your Tucson was like one, U of A was like one in 20 over the last couple years, but... Okay, focus on the right story here. Okay, so 1990s, Scottsdale Saguaro. One in nine, the coach told them, whoever stays will be champions. Like, is that just coach speak, right? We all, if you've played a sport or something, you know that. Like, what are you going to say, right? You have to say something. Like, stay and you'll be champions. I'm sure the coach was probably wearing awkwardly short shorts and, you know, probably just... Right, just kind of given coach speak. Well, fast forward three years later, that group of young men went 13 and 1, so 13 wins, one loss, won the state championship. They were champions. It was th- that school's first ever championship. Now, what happened between that amount of time? Right, likely a lot of d- doubting. Likely a lot of people did transfer out and leave, right? People, we've seen that in youth sports in our own family, just people switch teams all the time, like, oh, we didn't win this one, I'm going to go find the other team, and, and, and it just, people just, just change all over the place. Well, those who stayed, I actually know one of my good friends, he's the youth pastor at Redemption Gilbert, was on that team. He went from a freshman to a senior and experienced that transformation. But imagine, again, everything that went in between that, that if you stay and trust the process, you'll experience championship. And the temptation, right, if you've probably had two-a-days, the next couple years, they didn't, it's not like they've just all of a sudden overnight, everything changed. They, they suffered losses. They, again, had friends transfer. Imagine what that would feel like. But they trusted the process. 
Well, that's, you know, you could see there are probably hundreds of stories like that. Well, as we look at the life of David, King David, we see a bit of a similar kind of situation where as a 15-year-old, he was told, this is going to be the king of Israel. The anointed king. God specifically spoke and there was oil poured on his head. And, and then after that, right, not too long after that, he triumphantly kills this giant Goliath. We've walked through this over the last few weeks. Well, in the next 15 years, after he was told, you're going to be the king of Israel, he is chased around. Saul, who is currently king, tries to kill him at least 10 times, right? Three times by spear being thrown at him, and he dodged it, right, and missed. Uh, so it's not like his life has been easy. And imagine the frustration and the anguish and the struggle that would come with being like, uh, I, I had this promise, but I'm not realizing that. Well, now we'll, where we enter into the story today is, again, 15 years has now gone by. He was told this promise as a 15-year-old, and now 15 years later, if you can do the math, right, he's 30 years old, and, and he still hasn't fully seen this promise come together, that he will be God's king over God's people. But what we'll see as we walk through a few chapters together in 2 Samuel is that David... In a world of constant conflict, David is set apart as a man who trusts God and loves his enemies. So with that in mind, let's pick up where we just were, where Liz read through us in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 2 in verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. And, and then it continues, And David went up there. And so there's this, right out of the gates here, you see David trusting in the Lord. Every step of the way, he asks God, Well, where should I go? When should I go? Should I go now? And he goes, and he obeys. After 15 years, would you not be tempted to be like, I know what I'm doing here already. I'm going to just kind of speed up this process. I'm going to go and kill the people that have tried to kill me. And I'm going to go and kind of take over and just start, start this whole kingdom. That's the plan. Let's just go with this thing. But he continually seeks God. He trusts in the Lord and it's revealed. He asks time and time again. Just pause for a moment and let's just consider our lives. Are we not so tempted to just want to know the end result and then just be able to hit cruise control and hurry up and get there? Take whatever shortcuts we need to take along the way and just get to the end result, right? We struggle to be patient. Our society is just, it runs at a frantic pace where we, it's, it doesn't make sense. In fact, and sometimes it's even, it's even kind of told to us that good stewardship would mean hurry up. Like, don't be patient. Slow down. Just get to where you're wanting to go as fast as you can. Okay, I don't know everyone's story in this room, but just, I want to pause for a moment. Just even let us, let this kind of sink in for a moment. What's going on in your life? Maybe in your faith journey. Maybe in your family, in your, your health. 
your job situation, your relationship situation, where you've been waiting for a long time. And the Bible is full of promises that say, oh, just, right, God's going to do this. We heard some of it today, but we find ourselves, some theologians refer to this as like the now and not yet. We're there. We know that God fulfills his promises. He is trustworthy, but we're not experiencing that. In fact, in many cases, we're experiencing the exact opposite of it. Okay, just hear me now. I want to encourage us that God sees and he cares and he's trustworthy and he calls us to trust in him. But often we don't know what that means. And, and we are so uncomfortable with tension. Right? Is that not true? But, but what would it look like for us to grow in being comfortable in something that God is incredibly comfortable with? All right, we, 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 as we read the scriptures, as we read the Bible, God is okay with tension. In fact, he often works powerfully and mightily in the middle of places that we want to get out of as quickly as possible. Okay, one example of such a place I, is um, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, if you know this story, Jesus, it's right before, it's on the night when he would be arrested and then would ultimately go to the cross and die. He's in the garden praying and he asks his friends to pray and to stay up awake and be alert while he goes off and prays. And they fall asleep, right? They're not very trustworthy and he is struggling. He's in anguish and he prays. He says, if there's any other way for, for your promises to be fulfilled, he's praying to the Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way other than the cross, let it, let it, let it pass. I, I choose that. But then he says, not my will, but your will. Well, fast forward just within the next couple of hours, one of his best friends who's seen him do all kinds of miracles and all kinds of things, Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, when they finally come to arrest Jesus, all the high priest servants come to arrest Jesus. Well, Peter jumps right up and grabs a sword and tries to cut off the high priest's servant's head, and he misses, and he lops off his ear. And Jesus looks at Peter and just tells him, put that away. Right? And he, he models for us patience. He models trusting the Father. Right? We, we sometimes look at Peter and like, oh, foolish Peter, silly Peter. But again, is that just, think of our, our own lives. Is it not just this similar temptation and desire to just hurry up the process? I'm going to not, even though Jesus said I'm going to die and then I'm going to raise from the dead, Peter's like, surely God just wants to, wants to you know, bring in his, his kingdom. I'm going to help with that. I'm going to make, I'm going to bring this along. I'm going to speed it up. And he doesn't trust the Lord. And there's this contrast with Jesus, though he's the one who will go to the cross, submitting, trusting the Father. So again, now back to David in verse 8. We see that right away, right, he's been promised he'll be the king over all of Israel. Well, in verse 8, this guy, this heir of Saul, is, is anointed the king over half of his, over Israel, over the north. Like, imagine the frustration in that. Wait, no, I'm going to be king of Israel. And so he's just 
anointed and installed as king of Judah, as king of the, the south, but then all of a sudden, right, right out of the gates, now again, someone else steps in. Someone takes his place. It's not fair. It's not just. It's not right. It's not the right timing. Like, it's been 15 years. I've been waiting, and Saul just died. Now it's finally my turn, but Ishbosheth. And by the way, if I accidentally say a cuss word when referring to that word, I'm sorry. But um, I've tried, I've practiced. Ishbo, Ishbosheth. Um, right? So he all of a sudden steps in here, and now that's an enemy. It's imagine the frustration. But, but again, in these years, in this time, David is okay with tension. He's trusted God for 15 years, and though it's likely grown incredibly frustrating, he continues to simply surrender to God's timeline. God is comfortable with tension. Let me even submit to us that these are likely David's best years. Not his most comfortable, not his most famous. Okay, in full disclosure, as I was kind of preparing here, I'm like, I don't know that I've ever preached these these chapters before when I've I have gotten to preach on King David's life before and it's usually you know some of the other things that we've covered or some of the things that are coming up in the years ahead but right now it's he's in this kind of in-between place he's been hiding out in caves it hasn't been very glamorous it's not been very newsworthy very bulletin board worthy but even what we just read at the very beginning it's like every step along the way he's seeking God's will He's faithful. I think these are the years when he is a man after God's own heart, as he's referred to. He trusts God, and he's set apart from everyone else because of it. But even more so, he's set apart by radically loving people that no one else thinks he should love. He loves his enemies. Look in the, in the story here. I'll, I'll kind of just share. I'll, I'll explain a bit, and then we're going to read some more as we're c- covering such a huge section of Scripture. But David loves his enemies. In chapter 1, Saul, King Saul, again, the guy who tried to kill him 10 times, he threw a spear a- at him. I don't know about you, but I get some kind of way when someone cuts me off in traffic, or someone is disrespectful to me when I'm buying fast food. <laughs> right? And, and, or they get my order wrong, or I mentioned earlier, right? They kind of cut me off when I'm stuttering at the, at the drive-thru. Yeah, I have issues, um, right? They, I get some kind of way, well, I, I've, no one's ever thrown a spear at me once, much less three times, or tried to kill me ten times. Well, when Saul finally dies, David grieves, and in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, the person who actually was the one ultimately who, 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 who Saul told to kill him is kind of an assisted suicide. The guy who ultimately kills Saul and comes and he tells David, thinking it's going to be good news. Hey, David, I finally, Saul's finally dead. Well, David is angry. And then he, 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 he mourns Saul's death. He grieves it. Saul's his enemy. <laughs> Right? Everyone, all of his closest people are like, no, no, Saul's your enemy. This is good news. But David operates by a different set of rules. And then in the, in the coming chapters, in, in chapter 2, um, kind of verses 4 through, through, through 7 again, he honors the people that buried Saul. 
And then in the whole rest of that chapter, there's this whole series of people killing each other because they're, they, they're, 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 they're killing their enemies. Some are on the other side or on Ishbosheth's side. Some are on David's side. And then they switch teams and they're like, oh, now I'm on your team. And they're killing each other. And David wants nothing to do with it. In fact, this I am going to read here, this kind of soap opera uh, has just been going on. And people are killing each other and, and then coming to David thinking it's good news. And look how David reacts. Read with me in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. When they came into the house, this is of, of Ishbosheth. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. Sorry, PG-13 here. They beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. Or sorry, now I'm picking up. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So they show up, right? They've been cruising. They, they, they killed him in the northern part. They cut off his head. They carry it with them, I don't know, in a basket or something. And they bring it. And they now all of a sudden they show up to the party. They're like, hey, David, good news. Your enemy, you know, your enemy Saul and then his son Ishbosheth, who's also your enemy, we took care of him. And David gets angry. It's like awkward moment, right? Like, I'm not happy at all. You thought I was going to reward you. The people who reported Saul's death to me brought out my anger. I took care of them. How much more has what you've just done now brought my anger about? He, he, is, he is livid. And everyone else is confused. No, no, no. Saul's your enemy. Ishbosheth is your enemy. These people were Ishbosheth's like secret service. They were his, his like guards. And they're like, no, we switched sides. We're on your team, David. Aren't you going to be happy with us? And David's like, no. When is this going to stop? And David actually grieved and then he mourned. And then people tried to talk him out of his mourning. Okay, again, imagine how counterintuitive intuitive it is to love your enemies. David is refusing to eat. He's fasting. He's honoring the person who just died. And, and, and he's praying that, that God's kingdom will be united. And it's completely mind-blowing to everyone else. They're like, eat. It's not wise to not eat right now. And David says, no. He refuses he loves his enemies. Now, now, again, we have kind of a historical, I don't know, high place we can look and just be like, oh, yeah. Like, how do you and I do with loving enemies? Who are your or my enemies? Are, are we so uncomfortable living in places of tension that we so quickly moved to a place of that person's my enemy. I have nothing to learn from them. I can't even eat with that person. I can't be in a community with that person. I can't be in the same church as that person. I can't come before the Lord's table with that person or those people. All right, let me just say, I actually read a couple things this morning in thinking about this. And um, 
it, we are living in such a time and in such a world that so quickly goes to making others out of people. You're the other. We no longer talk about people as image bearers of God. They're liberals. They're conservatives. Right? They're heathens. We use terms that, that, that just take away the dignity of being an image bearer of God. Should we hold people accountable? Should we, should we stand on truth? Yes. Okay, again, this, this article that I just read this morning, I think kind of blew everything up. And it just talked about, 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 about shortfalls on the left and shortfalls on the right. And then this article even went a step further and said shortfalls in the middle, the moderate that kind of sits in an ivory tower. This is, I'm preaching to the preacher here right now, okay? We don't have, we have a choir, but I'm also preaching to myself here that I tend to be like, oh, I'm not this extreme, I'm not this extreme, I kind of sit in this, you know, holy, holy high tower and just kind of judge everyone else and I don't really speak up against or for anything, right? And that's this, 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 this temptation and we make enemies out of, out of everyone, but that's not, that's not the gospel. The Lord's table, communion, when Jesus took bread and broke it, right, we're going to do this in a moment when we respond. When Jesus took bread and broke it and he handed it out to his disciples, we forget that those disciples, those 12, or at the time 11 who were gathered around him were made up of our equivalent today of pacifists and like Second Amendment, you know, NRA. Uh, it was made up of people on the left and people on the right. The, the Lord's table was made up of people who would no way, who would be enemies if not for Jesus. But again, we are so uncomfortable with discomfort, with tension, that we make enemies out of others. But we have a picture earlier, Joel referred to it, where Jesus shows us how he treats enemies. Look, look with me in 1 Peter um, chapter, chapter 2. I think I'll have it up here on the screen. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus, we're told this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his own wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Okay, hear me. Let me kind of connect these dots for us. Jesus is the way to life. Jesus said in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes 
to the Father but through me. He's the way to life. He is the only way to life because, as Joel had earlier, um, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we're yet sinners, while we're enemies, not when we get it all right, not when we vote the right way, not when we're aligned in the right side of the table or the aisle, uh, but while we're yet enemies, while we deserve God's judgment, while we have rebelled against him, he demonstrates his love in that moment by dying for us. Through Christ and Christ alone, we can have life, forgiveness, reconciliation. He's the way to life, and he's also the way of life, right? As it says here, it says that, that um, Jesus, Jesus died for us, right? He suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He's also the way of life. Self-sacrifice. Absorbing hostility. Withholding judgment. Refusing to call an enemy an enemy. But viewing an enemy as someone to be pursued, as someone to lay down your rights for, is also the way of life that Jesus calls us into we see an imperfect picture of that in David. David loved Saul. But we see here in verse, uh, in verse, in, as I re- read earlier, um, in now, now read in chapter 3 here. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now, we want to just view that as like, okay, David overcame them, David overpowered them. No, David's weakness made him strong. Throughout the whole story here, right, Saul throwing spears, trying to kill David. David's his enemy. What do you do with enemies? You take them out. You kill them. Saul models that. Ishbosheth, what does he do? Wages war. No, it's my right. I'm the heir. I'm going to be the king. He's anointed king, and he, he's, he comes after David. What does David do? He views him as a friend. He mourns when he's killed. David chooses weakness, and the result is he gets stronger and stronger. He is stronger because he trusts God, because he loves his enemies. That is counterintuitive in our world today. But the result is that he's set apart. In just a couple more verses where we see this, in, in, uh, in, in chapter 5, so now skipping ahead, he's finally anointed as king. David becomes king. He's king over all of Israel. Look at verses 9 and 10 through me as I kind of land the plane here. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of D- David. He purposefully did that, by the way, because there were all these tribes that were warring for, oh, this is going to be, oh, this is going to be the, the, where, where Benjamin, where Judah, where, right, and all these different groups. But even in this, David is unifying the people together, and it's called the city of David, where ultimately Jesus' family will come from. And he built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. It's important there. If you underline things, for. 
David became greater and greater because he constantly trusted the Lord and he lived out the way of the Lord. He loved his enemies. David's story actually ends pretty tragically. From here on out, it's, it's a series of highs and lows, ups and downs. But in this moment, David is set, apo- set apart from everyone else. He grows greater and greater, stronger and stronger because he trusts God, because he, he reflects God's heart. He loves his enemies. Church, what would it look like for you? Okay, think kind of inwardly now, your own life. In what ways is God calling you to trust in him? In, in what, I don't know your situation, but in what ways in your life does your temptation to just take matters in your own hands, to take shortcuts, to hurry up the process, just blend right in with the whole rest of the world, health-wise, relationship-wise, family-wise, job-wise, in what ways are you tempted to just grow frustrated and bitter, worn out, tired? In, in what ways do you and I and we just blend in with the world and how we talk about others? Is there someone that maybe God is even now putting on your heart? You've turned into an enemy. There's division. There's reconciliation. It's just easier to kind of let bygones be bygones. Who might God be even putting on your heart to pick up the phone and to call? To send a message to, to say, I'm sorry the way things are. I I wish they were different. God's people are set apart because they trust in him and they radically love others. So with that in mind, let's pray together as we close, as we prepare to respond individually and corporately as God's set-apart people, radically trusting him and boldly loving others. Lord, we come before you right now. In fact, even now with all of our eyes closed, I just want to give a moment. I want to kind of give some space. Again, as I mentioned earlier, what's your situation? Loss, frustration, seemingly unanswered prayers, living in this place of tension, of frustration and sadness, dreams that you have that have yet to be fulfilled in the way you thought they should be fulfilled, in the way that God even says in Scripture would be good if it was fulfilled this way. I I don't know what it is, but I want to encourage you. God often works most powerfully in those places. Who might have wronged you, might have gossiped about you, might have unjustly treated you some kind of way? How does Jesus' love, his radical pursuing love of you, now set you free, empower you to love with a kind of love that you can't muster up on your own, but that you have received and experienced undeservedly that now sends you boldly to be able to love those who seemingly don't deserve to be loved. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you lead us now individually and corporately to respond. Lord, to be a set-apart people. Lord, we are so tempted to just blend in with the world around us. I pray that you will keep us from that. 
Lord, we want to, I want to. It's so much easier to just do things our way, to take the bull by the horns, to take shortcuts, to not trust you in, in difficult places of tension. Lord, it's so much easier to just kind of turn away, turn our backs to other people that you call us to turn the other cheek but continue to pursue. God, thank you for your radical love for us. And we pray that you will somehow empower us to radically be used by you in this world as a shining light. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.